And God, as we open your word, we open up ourselves and we acknowledge our great need for you. No matter who we are or how well we think we've been doing, we need you, Jesus. So come meet with us and speak to us this morning. Amen. So we've been traveling through the Gospel of Matthew since February. We've, we've taken some breaks in there. Um, and, and we slowed down in certain sections like the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. We spent a lot of time there just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And now, just by way of reminder, we're in this section of Matthew, chapters 8 through 10, where Jesus is doing all of these incredible things. And really, I believe the purpose of this big section is Jesus is demonstrating what he earlier proclaimed, which was the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. So now Jesus, he's not just saying it, but he's showing it. It's a, it's a show and tell. So Matthew's big theme is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has said and done in the Old Testament. And so we're calling this section Fulfillment Demonstrated. This is, this is fulfillment of God's promises in action. And so, again, by way of review, you know, like chapter 8 started with Jesus healing a leper. Um, he performed a long-distance healing of a, a Roman soldier's servant, the centurion's faith. You might recall that story. Um, or you might recall some stories about Jesus healing the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. He, he also healed many other people, Matthew says. Jesus was on a boat, you know, and a storm was raging and Jesus was asleep and he calmed the storm. Last week we saw that. Then they landed the boat on the other side and there were two demoniacs hanging out in a graveyard, two, two men possessed by demons, and uh, Jesus drove those demons into pigs. And that's normally, you know, like when I read through the Gospels, that's normally how I read it. Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did this. But upon further investigation, there's, there's, a, there's a layer behind all of those things. It's not just a random assembly of stories. The Holy Spirit is connecting these demonstrations of power to the fulfillment of God's promises and his purposes all along. So like, for example, last week we saw in calming the storm, Jesus was demonstrating his authority over the visible realm, what we would call earth, okay, the visible realm. And then in casting out the demons, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the invisible realm, which the Bible often refers to as heaven or the heavens. And so those two things are going to appear in our story again today because um, where heaven and earth met in the Old Testament was the temple. That was God's presence, his, his presence being manifest on earth in the temple. So I believe that our story today, kind of beneath the surface layer, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament temple stood for. So that's where we're going. I'll start by just reading the text, and then today we're just going to walk through it verse by verse. So this is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It'll be on the screen. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They're saying that to themselves. 
knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So we'll just start in verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. And so far, in Jesus' travels, especially starting in chapter 8, now we're into chapter 9, in Jesus' travels, we're seeing, like, some places that Jesus goes, like the first chunk of scripture, there's a lot of interest in following Jesus. People are seeing what he's doing, and they're really responding, like, this is amazing. And then he went to the other side. We saw this last week. And after he drove out those demons into the pigs, the whole town came to him. And do you remember what they said? They said, could you please leave? They pleaded with him to go. And so there's this contrast of like, you know, where Jesus is and how he's being received. And so it, it, you know, as we're starting this story, it just kind of within us, it should be like, well, so now Jesus is, going to another side of a lake, and how are they going to receive him? This is his hometown. How are they going to receive him? So let's see. In verse 2, it says, Some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, the men who were carrying the paralyzed man, Jesus said to the man, to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And you might recognize this story, especially if you've grown up in church. Like, um, this is the famous story of the hole in the roof. I mean, it it made it into the illustrated Bible that I read my two-year-old son. It's a famous story. And Matthew intentionally omits, if you notice, you know, if you're carefully observing the text, Matthew doesn't say anything about, well, they cut a hole in the roof, um, or that, that, the, that the, the house was so crowded that they had to go up to the roof. He, he leaves those details out. And I think he's, he's doing it because he's, he's, drawing, he's drawing a specific emphasis out of this story. And so first, first let's, let's slow down and let's look at the first application that I believe we can clearly write, write and take home with us is Jesus saw the friend's faith. So the friends who took this man to Jesus, he saw their faith by what they did. These were not hired hands. These friends brought this man to Jesus out of their confidence. Jesus would do something. And for us today, our faith still drives our actions. The Bible is crystal clear on that. If you want more, see James 2, James chapter 2. But it is our faith that drives our actions, whether those actions are good, neutral, or bad. And therefore, our faith, it also impacts others. So for example, like our kids, you know, there's a lot of kids here at this church, and uh, it's really a community of faith effort to serve and invest in and develop our kids. 
Of course, that's not the only thing that God is doing here, but it's significant. I just want you to think about the fact that your faith, your pursuit of Jesus, Monday through Saturday, it impacts your interactions with kids on Sunday. It it impacts your view of kids. Your faith impacts not just those kids, but also their parents who are with them throughout the week. And so when, you know, say John Barton is sharing his faith at the workplace and I hear about it, like my heart gets encouraged and Wyatt gets a little bit of a better dad because this dad is, is increasingly growing confident that Christ is at work in the world. And so our faith, it just impacts each other. And, and Jesus saw the faith of these friends and it moved him to action. And so our faith also, it just, it just moves Jesus. It's, it's what he's looking for. It's the, it's, the, it's the point of all of these demonstrations of, of kingdom power. So Jesus saw their faith and Jesus sees our faith too. This isn't a rebuke or anything. It's just a reminder. Our faith impacts others and Jesus sees it. Here's, here's another example. If, if you don't have kids, your small group has influence on your workplace. Because what happens at small group? Well, we're all coming together as spiritual training buddies to build spiritual muscle, basically. We're, we're praying for each other. We're encouraging each other. We're holding each other accountable. And that faith impacts your actions. So I, through Joel, through, through Jared, I have impact into their workplaces when they act in faith because the, the, the muscles that we're building together at small group, they're flexing them out there. When they work hard as unto the Lord, when they're just praying for the people that God's placed around them, those are muscles that we built together. And likewise, them on me. It's a mutual benefit. And, and so this reality that our faith has impact on others, it just reinforces a couple of things that we all intuitively know. One, we all know that we need other people in our life. You need other people in your life. But the, the flip side of that is other people need you. Other people need you in their life. And we need the right kind of people. And don't, don't hear that and think, oh, I'm not good enough. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the right kind of person yet. Actually, in next week's passage, you'll find that Jesus is calling the type of people that you would least expect. Jesus is calling the type of people who are honest about their real condition, not hiding about it. They're, they're honest. They, they bring who they are into the open. And so when I say you need the right kind of people, you just need people headed in the right direction. I don't care if you're a millionaire like Kanye or unemployed. If you're moving towards Jesus, you're the type of person other disciples of Jesus need in their life. You need someone, like these friends, you need someone who is so confident in Jesus that they will exert effort to carry you to Jesus if that's what it takes. We all need to have these friends with the mindset of, I have to get to Jesus myself. I have to get my friend to Jesus because being in his presence, being with him is going to make all the difference. So that's our first application. Let's move on in the story. Now 
It's the climax of the story when this guy who can't move is finally placed before Jesus. And when we stop and hear the story, it's, it's, it's kind of something odd that happens next. Look at verse two. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now just stop and imagine you're that man lying on a mat. And your friends just went to great effort to get you before Jesus. And uh, clearly, you know, like the problem is evident <laughs> to you. Um, you can't walk. You're on this mat. And Jesus has been healing people. So how would you feel <laughs> when Jesus starts by saying, you know, some kind words, but then, it, you know, he says your sins are forgiven. Oh, that's nice, Jesus, but kind of came here thinking something else would happen. And what about if you were the friends? You'd be like, uh, does that mean that his legs are healed too? Like, is that a package deal? Um, it's, it's good for us to, to put ourselves in these stories because these are people just like us. And, and then we have to ask the question, okay, Jesus, why did you do it in this order? And I think at least one reason is everyone in their day and age, and honestly, a lot of people in our day and age, they still think that if there's these types of problems in people's life, um, it's, it's reflective of some sort of punishment from God. You know, now, choices do have consequences, but it's not a safe assumption biblically for yourself or to look at other people to say just because there's suffering, that is a direct punishment from God. And be, I think it's partially because of that unsafe assumption that Jesus first addressed the sin. You know, the, the faith of the friends, um, they believed that Jesus could do it. And I, I think they probably didn't have that assumption. So why did Jesus do it in this order? Why did he forgive and then heal? The short answer is he's teaching all of them. It's a teaching tool. And so when we ask God, why? why, why are you doing this? Or why are you doing things in the order that you're doing them? It's a good idea for us to stop and consider, okay, what's he teaching me? And when Jesus talks, verse two is loaded. <laughs> when Jesus talks, notice how he talks. It's very tender words. He says, don't be afraid. He says, take heart, be strong, internally strengthened. And then he calls him child or little one. Your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus is in his early 30s. We have no indication that this guy was a kid. He's probably, he might have even been older than Jesus. But this is, this is just a really good reminder of what the voice of God is like. It's very compassionate and tender when he speaks to us. So let's continue more on forgiveness. So when Jesus spoke those words, those tender words of forgiveness, in, in Jesus' Jewish, Jewish culture, uh, forgiveness happened at the temple. That's where it took place. And like I said earlier, that's where it connects to last week's stories. The temple is where heaven and earth met. 
And the Jews understood the temple was also where a holy God could come and be with simple man. Forgiveness was purchased and purchased by blood at the temple. So, backed by popular demand, here's the Bible project, guys, illustrating uh, the temple and the, 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 yeah, how it ties in to our story today. I know, you want to watch more. There's a few more minutes of that video on YouTube and uh, Heaven and Earth. That's it's the same one we watched last week. That's a little longer clip. But all that to say, it just kind of unpacks how they thought and they rightly understood that God had put the temple there for many reasons, for his presence, but also this was where forgiveness took place, the sacrifice. And that sacrifice absorbed the sin so that a holy God could dwell with the sinful people And all I'm trying to say today is in this story, Jesus is acting out as the temple, a fulfillment of what the Old Testament temple was meant to be. And that Old Testament temple was torn down due to the sin of men. Jesus' body was torn down and destroyed on the cross due to our sin. But just as he said would happen, that temple was rebuilt in three days in his resurrection. And so this is definitely the forgiveness element is the climax of this story today. And after the climax of a story comes falling action. And so the falling action in our story is judgment. Judgment from the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, who said to themselves in verse 3, this fellow is blaspheming. And again, I think it's good to pause and recognize that There's application here for us. You will either be healed by Jesus or be harmed by him. Find your worldview harmed. You'll find him to be a sweet offering or a sinister offense. And Jesus knows our thoughts too, just like he knew their thoughts. There is no hiding from him. And and if you want to keep something from him, that would be incredibly maddening. To you. But it's kind of nice if, you, if you've decided to trust him with your whole life. At least for me, it's reassuring. Ah, he knows me. He knows me better than I know myself. I, there is no hiding from him. I can say, Jesus, I'm glad you knew that was there because I sure didn't <laughs> until you showed me. And so Jesus doesn't just know this. He, he confronts their thoughts. And I'm convinced Jesus is confronting their thoughts in love. It's not good for them to entertain evil thoughts in their hearts, so Jesus brings that out into the open. And any kook, any, any crazy person can say the words, you're forgiven, and you know, like, how do you know? How, how do you know if you're forgiven or not? And that's where the demonstration of power comes in. When Jesus says, so that you may know, he's saying this demonstration of power is so that you can know that you are forgiven, just like I said. So Jesus heals the paralytic with a word. Pick up your mat and walk. And then it ends in verse 8. A verse that, frankly, I've skipped over most of my life. But this week, it really stuck out. Um, I think there's a lot here for us. And in verse 8, it says, The crowd is afraid, terror and awe, but that transforms into worship. And it reminded me of Exodus 40, the very end of the book, 
when Moses constructed the tabernacle, that very first temple, and God's spirit descended on it and kind of powered it up, really, like activating the, the temple. Like that's what the temple is meant to be is God's powerful presence and everyone was afraid and worshipful. Um, that seems to be what's happening here. They were like, we're in the presence of God. And they worshiped the God who gave authority to men. I've always read that. And I could be wrong in my reading and my study. This I've always read that like, yeah, you know, like, why would they say God gave authority to men? Because it's really Jesus, right? <laughs> like God gave this authority to Jesus, the Jesus who just forgave this guy, the Jesus who just healed this paralytic. And Jesus, to be sure, he is the man. But the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write men, mankind. And you can check the Greek. You go to interlinear Bible, it's, it's there. I checked it four times. If you believe every word is inspired and inerrant, this, this should kind of rock you a little bit. Because it's one thing, I, I'll just speak for myself. It's one thing for me to see, okay, that's Jesus' power being put on display in the gospel. You know, like Jesus is doing all these incredible things. But it's another thing to say, God gave this authority to us. And, and then you got to back up. Okay, so that's what it says. That's, that's the plain reading I see. What authority are we talking about? Like, let's just reorient. The plain reading is the authority to forgive sins and to heal, which is what Jesus just did. Now, I want to be super clear. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. But I think it's telling us a lot about our role as ambassadors. What an ambassador is, is it's someone who has delegated authority. Someone who has power and, and position to act on another's behalf. And so, I'm just trying to tie this back into real life. When someone confesses their sins to you, you have incredible power and you have an important position in their life. You, so, I just, I just got to say, I think it's a really good idea to say something to the effect of your sins are forgiven. Or, by the blood of Jesus, you're forgiven. You're forgiven in Jesus' name. And you might think, Ben, that's pretty wooden, um, but I think it's more like when we learn how to say thank you and you're welcome at an early age, that could become a very stale practice. But if you stop, I'd encourage you this week, next time you say thank you to someone, just internally in your mind, think about what that means, that you're thanking them. Or when you're being thanked and you say you're welcome, that can be a very meaningful exchange. It's What they're saying is, I appreciate you. They're saying what you've done there's a blessing. There was, there was a great help. It's made my life better in some way, and I appreciate you doing that. And when you're saying you're welcome, you're receiving, you're receiving that appropriately, and you're honoring their thanks. So all that to say, when, when we receive the confession of sin, uh, I just think we, we get to be ambassadors. We, we get to use this delegated authority to remind people your sin has not separated you from the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. It helps us to live 
in the reality that, that we're now in, which is heaven and earth in Christ. We live in both realms. So if, I, I want to say this too. If you're sitting there and you're like, I have some theological hesitation that prevents me from saying something like you're forgiven. Um, if it feels a little Catholic to you, that's okay. I, I, honestly, I've had that hesitation. Um, so get with someone and explore it. Explore it. Again, we're not Jesus, but we are called to be his ambassadors acting on his behalf. Ambassadors have delegated authority. So these healing stories, they really force us to deal with what kind of authority do we have? What can we expect it to look like? Because when we see Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, we can ask ourselves, should we be doing that? And we can pretty confidently, I'm pretty sure everyone in the room would say, yeah, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom we should proclaim the kingdom. Jesus accompanies his message with kingdom power. Should we expect to demonstrate kingdom power in our life? This is where these chapters really cause us to stop and think, hmm, well, and you can disagree with me on this, still be a member of our church, but I just want to say, based on the reading of the text, we should, yes, expect to demonstrate the power of the kingdom in your life. But we must remember, miracles are by definition abnormal. If a miracle becomes normal, it really ceases by definition to be a miracle, to be outside of the natural way that God has established things to work. So you can live a faithful life, your whole life, demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God without ever having a miracle. While we have authority in Christ to heal and forgive sins, that's not the mission. Okay, Matthew 9 is not the end of Matthew's gospel. This is not the mission that he's given us to accomplish. And Matthew actually concludes his gospel with a very clear bow <laughs> around this question that we've just been wrestling with. How should we use this authority? Well, Jesus says it at the very end, his last line in Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. We have this authority, Jesus' authority, in order to make more apprentices, more students, more learners who follow the way of Jesus. And so I showed this picture a couple weeks ago as we wrestled with kingdom demonstrations. So let me just walk you through it because I know it looks a little chaotic. But these squiggly lines on your left, they are miraculous demonstrations of kingdom power, such as the ones we read about. They are pointing to discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus with your whole life. And as you follow Jesus, as each of us follow Jesus, our life should produce demonstrations of the power of the kingdom that we are living in. And sometimes the squiggly lines, which is outside of our control. But most of the time, it is internal character. It's the change of who we are and, and working out who we are and who we're becoming in the world around us. And those are straight lines like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is what the Spirit of God produces. It is the fruit 
of the Spirit. So I just want to leave you today where this story left the crowd and honestly, where the end of this passage leaves me. It leaves me with a little bit of awe and terror that points me to worship. So let, let's pray in line with a line, in line with that emotion. So for me, I, I just say, Lord, who am I that I should be entrusted with your authority for your great purposes on the earth? In my family, in my workplace, in my neighborhood. It is awesome that you have given this type of authority to men. And it is also awesome that you speak so tenderly as you did to the paralytic. Take heart. Be internally strengthened. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. I pray that we would rely on you learn to use the authority that you've delegated, you've entrusted to us for your purpose of making disciples of all nations.